Hello, Whatnots. This is normally where the cold open goes for every Baxter Building episode, but there's no cold open this time because instead there's an apology. The audio quality for the episode you're about to hear is kind of a little bit wacky. When we were recording, there was something strange going on either with Skype or with our internet or with the internet and Skype uh, to the point where... When we were having the conversation, there were big gaps between when I would speak and when Jeff would speak, or the alternative, we'd actually be overlapping and not realise because there was such a weird lag. In the editing, I've tried to fix this as much as possible, but between that and also the fact that because of the strange connection, occasionally my audio, my side of the audio, sounds very thin or, or sounds very, uh, very strange. It's going to sound like a weird episode. I'm just telling you that up front. I'm very sorry. Jeff is very sorry as well. We don't really know what caused it because things seem to be outside our control. Let's blame it on Skype, right? I think that's fair. Anyway, things are going to sound weird this episode. Hopefully they will not sound as weird next episode. This seems to be a strange aberration. I hope you enjoy nonetheless. Let's go into the theme music, shall we? Hello, whatnots. Welcome to episode 18 of the Baxter Building, where we talk about the Fantastic Four. We're in a bit of a fallow period, but stay with us. We're going to make it worthwhile. Uh, I am Graham McMillan. I'm one of your, your two hosts for this adorable series, this cute little series of ours. Uh, and with me is my co-host, and at the rate things are happening, probably the next police chief of Oakland. <laughs> well, thanks, Graham. Yes, hello, everyone. It's Jeff Lester. I want you to pull your car over, show me your driver's license, and maybe your genitals. So... People who aren't paying attention to what's been happening in Oakland, they're going to be like, what? What in the it's name a of thing. God? Yeah, it's a thing. You wouldn't understand. It's, it's an O-Town it's, thing. It, three police chiefs in a week, right? Yeah. That's what it's been? Some, something is, like is, that. Yeah. Oh, oh, my God. Anyway, um, we are talking about issues 147 through 159 of Marvel's Fantastic Four uh, with a sight. Slight side trip uh, to Avengers 127 as well. Oh, yes. Um, Although, I have to interrupt, Graham. I take it that means you did not read Giant Size Superstars number one by the same creative team that fell in between these issues. I did not. But that's funny you say that because I was going to say, we should do that. We should totally do that. And we should do the, the Giant Size Fantastic Four issues for next episode. That'd be great. Although, do they have the Just Giant like... Size? Yeah. They have at least issue four on Unlimited, and they have all of them in uh, Essential Fantastic Four Volume 7. Oh, I see. Hmm. I wonder how I get my hands on that. Huh. Okay. We will have to... We won't be doing that this episode, True Believers, but perhaps soon. <laughs> we, we might do it next time. Who yeah. knows? Uh, for now, we are dealing with the end of the Jerry Conway era. The thank God end of the... And, on the outs era and the be- 
beginning of the second reign of Roy Thomas. Graham, do you wanna? What? Where do you think that we should uh, start? Should we just dive right in? Should we talk about what's come before the potential threads going on? Maybe not. I guess I can't imagine people will. Yeah, will, I, let, yeah. let's start with the. the first three issues, uh, which are Fantastic Force 147, 148, 149. That's one storyline where the episode titles, or the issue titles, as you say, are the Submariner Strikes. I almost said the Submariner. Yes. Rookie mistake, but I almost said it. Uh, Submariner Strikes, War on the 36th Floor, and To Love, Honor, and Destroy, which is the best title of any of the issues. I'm just going to say that right <laughs> Right now, out of these uh, 13 issues, the best title. Although, if we were including the Avengers issue in there, we would have to say that Bride and Doom has it. But <laughs> yes. that's technically not a Fantastic Four uh, issue. Anyway, um, the plot of these issues, super quickly, is that Sue has been kidnapped by the Submariner. And fallen for him again, Jeff. She's fallen for him. Mm-hmm. That's, that's proof. If any proof were needed, that they're definitely not fucking around with this Reed and Sewer on the outs thing. And it only gets worse when Submariner then declares war on the surface world again. And yeah. Sue's right there, right next to him. Yeah. What the fuck is happening? <laughs> Turns out, it's all a sham. In what could only be described as the most wonderfully out-of-character moment in the Fantastic Four so far, it turns out that Submariner has been faking the entire thing to get Rinzu back together because that's something he cares about and also he's such a prankster. <laughs> it's the nuttiest plot twist. You know, uh, yes. did you like these three issues? Because I've got to tell you, I really did. And I really, reading it, I realized this is the Jerry Conway from the Justice League that I remember as a kid. Mm-hmm. The one who honestly has absolutely no problem with just kind of being a bit of a dick and doing the most outrageous stories that end up with no harm done and no we just declared war on the surface world but we didn't really mean it friends cheers see you later sploosh and i kind of loved it well it's so funny because i actually um well, uh, before I get to my feelings, uh, complicated feelings about it, I have to say that when I got to the end of 149, I was like, you know, I bet Graham is going to like this because that ending uh, where it turns out <laughs> that the Submariner has teamed up with Triton of the Inhumans to more or less stage a fake uh, invasion to, uh, uh, to, to bring Reed and Sue back together is... Such a Silver Age DC idea where <laughs> someone's going destroying, you know, Batman's life. Who does it turn out to be? Oh, it's Superman because it, Superman thought that this would be a great birthday present. You know, like it's such such a Silver Age DC concept, which almost feels like part of the twist. I, I don't think there's any. I, I'm kind of curious. Like, I don't think that, that it's necessarily thematic. I think that, honestly, Conway grew up reading DC stuff and being very into DC as well, as did the, you know much of this entire generation of writers that were coming up in the 70s. But I do sometimes wonder if staring down the barrel of this idea of Reed and Sue are going to get divorced, because that's how it opens with issue... 147 is Reed is once again 
lying there in a catatonic shock, you know, with his, you know. He really is. He's got the divorce papers in his hands and he's unable to speak. Yeah, he's unable to They're speak. They're talking to him and he, he doesn't speak. They're actually talking about him in front of him, and he in no way acts as if they're there. It's a very strange, almost Brechtian theatrical, like, aside kind of deal. It's very, very distracting. Uh, But, you know, I do wonder if it's like they get to that point of... Conway has already had to deal with or is in the process of dealing, I think, if I understand the issues correctly... He's killed off Gwen Stacy already in Amazing Spider-Man and is more or less in the process of being told to roll that back. And here we have Reed and Sue in the process of getting divorced and, as you say, the shit looking real and, and extreme. And then that also gets rolled back in a way that I sort of wonder if, like, Conway's kind of like, oh, okay, I, th- I thought Marvel Comics were a thing. They're really just DC comics with the illusion of change, you know? And and sometimes I wonder if that's why why that ending has such a... I mean, because in a, in a way it almost seems sweet, I guess. But what I find fascinating through these, through these three issues in particular is how strangely without agency both Sue and, in fact, Reed... Are. There's there's a section here where Reed is is fighting uh, the Submariner. I think it's in issue 147, and he he just he doesn't speak. Like you know, he's the, you see him with his mouth open, like jumping, and he crashes through the Submariner and his weird Submariner's weird like you know modern Swedish underwater housing and. Uh, you know, Namer saying stuff like, you surprised me, Reed Richards. Your rage is unfeigned. Your hatred all too real. Tell me, which angers you more, that your wife is in my power or the knowledge that it is you who have failed her, you who betrayed her wifely trust? And it's so, at all these points, like, Reed says nothing. He doesn't get any words in, like, Submariner's still yammering away. Then you see him, like, basically, like, whipping around Reed, like, piece of, I don't know, super long spaghetti or something or a wet towel. And and Reed still doesn't say anything. Similarly, the amount of things that Sue says, unless she's being spoken directly to, are really, it's, there's a lot of silence there. Like, I, I, I definitely read these issues. I remember as a kid, one of the things that definitely helped me reading these when I was young is not just that sort of like, oh, I'm a kid, I don't understand how adult relationships work, uh, and this somehow would make more sense if I was a grown-up, which I can happily say being an adult, no, uh, is that issue 148, uh, I did not have. I had issues 147 and 149, and so the jump between the two of them seems like I could only try and wrap my brain around what the fuck I'd missed, and it's kind of weird that it's this... Yeah, and then you find out that one forty-eight is kind of a weirdly a fill-in issue. Yeah, because the Submariner stuff gets set up in one forty-seven and pays off in one forty-nine, but one forty-eight is the frightful four attack. Yeah, yeah, it's 
it's really so weird. very strange. The structure is so strange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But here's my question to you then. Right. Um, talking about rolling things back, do you think that the 147 was set up uh, inten seriously? Because oh no if, no if no. not if mm -hmm. 147 is set up uh, as a as a uh, sincere twist in the failure of the relationship between Reed and Sue, mm -hmm. then in a weird way it reads much more forgiving to Sue than she comes out by the end of 149. Because 147 sees Sue say, "I'm in love with the Submariner. I'm staying with the Submariner." Yes, and for one forty nine, see the submariner be like, "Holy, joking! You crazy guys! I just wanted to manipulate you." It makes Sue seem really, really stupid, first of all, mm -hmm. but also weirdly fickle. Mm -hmm. and the, the the twist in one forty nine does no favors to Sue whatsoever, uh, and it you know it arguably does no favors to Reed, but in in Marvel's worship of Reed Richards, they can get around it by saying he's a genius except for matters of the heart, so therefore the Submariner can manipulate him that way. But Sue just comes across as just plain dumb. Well, I, you know, I don't... I mean, this is one of the things that I think is really weird is part of it could be that Conway is so incredibly young, but... You know, apart from those occasional panels that we talked about, like that really kind of demolishing last page that I forget, didn't that happen under Roy Thomas when they actually split? Um, it's Thomas, right? right so Tom, Thomas is the one who actually splits them. Yeah. So Conway has, how do I put it? It's a little bit like if there are, if there's, if there's parental problem, if, if you think of it as this, as a family breaking apart Conway honestly can't is, is one of the kids. This, there is no sense of adult knowledge for the most part running through this. It's all skimmed over so briefly. And to me in one forty nine, there's such a, the, the scene in which Ben talks to Sue and convinces her that Reed loves her which is this is 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 weird it just doesn't make much sense i get the i get the idea it even sort of has a through line from some of the stuff when she storms off with franklin the idea that reed doesn't really love her or franklin is is this deep suspicion that she has but even at the time when ben is like um can't you see that this guy loves you and isn't that supposed to be enough um, and she runs into Reed's arm and says stuff like, I thought it was supposed to be some sort of perfectly perfect fairy tale. I didn't realize that love is all about, you know, it's this classic, you know, love means never having to say you're sorry or, you know, it's the exact opposite of that basically. And it's, it's so, uh, she says that as Reed, you know, Ben points to Reed like, don't you see like he loves you? And Reed has literally said something in the previous panel like, step aside, Thundra. It's time for me to do my duty. Like, it's, it, there's no, not only, I, and I, I can't really fault Reed or Sue as the characters the entire time that I went through this 
my frustration is is that the idea was sound but the but the characters just kind of aren't there there's there's very little deepening you know we got to see sue out sort of playing horse riding horses for a couple of issues and then and that's kind of it like she she has very little agency throughout this stuff so it, it does it so yeah the weird idea that she turns around and says like i love namer and i'm going to stay with him forever the thing that's sort of shocking about it is that idea that you take it at face value and you take it as a statement of sue's agency i suppose but there's no other step or twist or anything that that makes her feel like there's just there's no there's no there's no internal life to the characters in a way which is really such a shame because there is nothing that's more i think profoundly about the schism between one's inner life and one's outer life than than divorce or a failed marriage you know and so you know i it, it's also it's also weird i mean part of me is like as a grown man even as a kid part of me was like so like sue and namer are having sex like you know because there is just kind of that weird thing of like he says he loves me i realize i love him i'm like okay so are they getting it on it it i mean in a way it doesn't even really matter <laughs> but it you know apart from my you know weirdo you know uh deviant interests really but but honestly even that i'm kind of like that does make it seem a little weirder that you know that namer is kind of like yeah i i hit that and then i realized love conquers all or something you know yeah if you're reading 147 as genuine like as sincere as not about to be walked back into issues as a joke mm-hmm. then then namer's namer is essentially cuckolding reed richards in right. the fight mm-hmm. like like you know he's doing all but actually like he's doing everything that the comics code would let him do mm-hmm. at that point to say i've slept with your wife yeah i'm more of a man than you yeah well and believe me that i wonder to the extent to which that's kind of where Conway's going because we've got a Silver Surfer storyline to talk about where that is made even more weirdly manifest. Oh, no, no, no. I, I I agree. Yeah. But but again, I, I guess what I keep coming back to is I think 147 is not the setup for the the punchline of 149. Hmm. I so, think 147, when it was created, mm-hmm. was meant genuinely the to be with Namor now, mm-hmm. and I think the the if you read it as that, mm-hmm. then it makes sense that one forty eight is then a frightful four issue, right? Because the the new status quo is that Sue is with Namor, mm-hmm. so of course you have another story. But if you look at it as, as the frightful four as the middle chapter of a trilogy. Right. Which is what eventually comes. It makes no sense because there's nothing in the Frightful Four part of 148 that advances any of the, the, the plots of 147 or 149. Uh, well, right. right. And then, then you have 149, which ends with haha, only joking, which does make me think that at some point between 147 and 149, someone talks to Conway 
mm-hmm. was like, no, 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 you, you, no, you can't do this. You have to wind it back, and we have to get Reed and Sue back together. It, it could very well be because there is a variety of stuff. By the time that Ween's in place, uh, the letters columns, because the, they they also literally go for like. Don't worry, true believers. Medusa's going to be on this book for a long time to come. And then she's gone in like another three or four issues even. So, and, and and there's a little bit of a, hey, it's the status quo is back. You know, isn't that great? But it's really not. We've gone through a voyage and, you know, I think it's, it's actually the last of the Roy Thomas issues now that I think about it. The letters page has a lot of like... Oh, things are different because Medusa's leaving, but things, you know, things are the same, but things are different. Honest. It does make you wonder if there's a certain degree of um, attempts to placate. Because, yeah, 147 on its own is is a strong issue. And it's interesting, you know, first I read these issues and then I, you know, didn't get a chance to thoroughly reread, but I definitely made a point to check out the letters pages. And... One of the things that they talk about in the letters pages is a bunch of people wrote in for 147 and was kind of like, wow, this is great. Interestingly enough, they also did at 149, which is kind of weird. They were like, oh, yeah, people loved it. 70-30, you know, kind of thing. Well, is that actually true? Right. You're exactly. Not, you're not going to get a letters page where they're like, so yeah, 30% loved it. 70% thought it was a, a you know a hacky Silver Age device. But to be fair... I love 147 and I love 149, but mm-hmm. they, they seem like two different, two different mindsets. Yeah. 149 yeah. really feels like some, yes, it feels like someone has been told, no, 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 no. You've got to, no, you can't, you can't leave Sue with, with Neymar. Well, but it's, it's true. If you read them, if you read them as a, a trilogy, mm-hmm. first of all, 148 makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, it, it does nothing for the overarching plot. And actually, even as an as standalone issue, 148 does very little other than brings uh, Thundra back into the, the yeah the cosmos of the Fantastic Four, where she actually remains for a while, interestingly yes. enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also positions her as close to being a hero as they can at mm-hmm. this point. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think 148 is, is pretty much like, oh yeah, no, th- you can trust Thundra. She she's a bit weird, sure, with her woman's lib, but you can trust her. Yes. Um but otherwise one forty eight is a weird wasted issue. It does nothing interesting with the Frightful Four. Mm-hmm. It does nothing interesting with the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Um but one forty eight and one forty uh, one forty seven and one forty nine are, are are fun issues for different reasons, but they're both fun issues. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's true. The the whole thing but to me, I guess for me, the the FF, the, this particular set of issues, top to bottom, feels like a disjointed mess. Um, and... I'll agree. The, the, the three issues as a as a three parter mm-hmm. don't feel like parter. Yeah, yeah. The three those three issues don't feel like a three parter. The the issue 150, which is the conclusion of this storyline set up in Avengers 127, just seems. Dumb and bad. The three issues with <laughs> machismo or machismo are, pre- are are the closest that you get to of a piece. And A, that piece is really bad. And B, there's that 
unbelievably um, barely pu published and barely publishable issue 152. Uh, and then, you know, then the... Then, sure, then you have 154, which is a fill-in. Mm -hmm. And then you have 155, 156, 157, which are so hacked out that you can actually tell in issue titles. Yeah, right. And then you get 158, 159, which also just feel exhausted. It, mm -hmm. it's a, it is, it feels like a book in its death throes yeah. in the weirdest way. Yeah, and at and, this point, it, it, there's a weird like tailspin going on. There is, and I think, and it's interesting because I, uh, you know, as as I've mentioned a few times in these most recent podcasts, I'm I'm a fan of Rich Buckler and Rich Buckler's work on Deathlock, uh, and it's a lot of people in these letters columns are pretty much ranting about Buckler and Sinnott. Uh, and I think Sinnott sort of delivers that feel like is when you've got Sinnott on the inks, giving it that sort of visual continuity, Buckler's stuff has a degree of visual flair to, to, to certain degrees. But I, I do think to me, I wonder the extent to which 147 through 159 really represent the Fail, some significant failures of Marvel at the time. And one of those things is the, at one point, the growth of Marvel is so huge and it's expanding so quickly that people can, people say that they're going to turn up on books they don't show up on. People announce that they're going to be long-term scripters on something they last two issues on, which we, we saw earlier with Thomas. But also I think that the Marvel method keeps the books from going as deep or as interesting as they need to be. Even 149, where in theory you've got the you couldn't have the higher stakes than like Submariner just invading the surface world with Sue by his side, which again, part of me is like, like you said, what, even if Sue is, is in love with Namor, the idea that that means that she's basically okay to sit freaked out on the back of a sea turtle while the fucking New York gets invaded and destroyed seems weird. Like you could you could almost see it if it's supposed to be some extension of some wrathful anger that we haven't seen Sue exhibit in about a year, you know. I, but, but but it's instead she's just passively hanging out in the back, looking like oh oh shit. Yeah, basically she and she ends up looking like the the chick in the Conan the Barbarian covers, you know, who's who's freaking out at whatever's in front of her. And it's, it's a, that's a bad fit, but also like in that issue you have, again, it couldn't be higher stakes. And yet there's a ridiculously long period of time that's spent recapping the Submariners. Uh, yeah. There's, there's, there's two pages. There's two pages specifically recapping issue four. Yeah. Not like all of some, what Submariner's been doing the entire time, specifically recapping issue four. Yeah. Including parts which are not relevant to the story. No, not at all. There is there is like two pages. Yeah. And that's followed by a double page spread of of the Submariner attacking again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
it's 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 there's actually so there's a couple of things I want to uh, point out in one forty seven and one forty nine specifically, and then I want to move on to one fifty to touch on something else you're talking about. Yeah, uh, one forty seven uh, has the delightful scene where the Fantastic Four attack Namor underwater, and they, they all each member of the team does their witty banter in thought balloons. Mm-hmm. They're still doing the witty banter as if they're talking to Namor, but they're doing it in thought balloons, which I love. Like, Johnny actually thinks, one thing's certain, I'm going to miss shouting epithets, such as, watch out, Namor, we're coming through, and then later thinks, thinks, mind you, think you're pretty cool, don't you, Namor? Let's see how you keep your cool when things start getting hot. Flame on! That's right. He thinks his own catchphrase. Yeah. That is then followed by Ben Grimm thinking... You guessed it, Gil Jaws. I never did trust you. No one thought you persuaded you after all the years you spent without your memory. And especially not later, when you tried to take Sue away from my old college buddy Reeds. So you can guess what I think of you now, Creepo. No, he can't, because he can't hear you, because you're fucking thinking it. <laughs> uh, and he actually then thinks, even if you can't hear me, I'll bet you know what I'm thinking. No, he doesn't. Right. Because you're thinking it, Ben. Uh, the other thing completely get off that ridiculous high horse is 149 has the really strange uh, exchange between Medusa and Johnny uh, on the second page where Medusa is essentially the only smart character in the FF again. Yes. And says, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. This is really weird, you guys. And Johnny says, look, Medusa, it's up to you. After all, you're not a regular member of the FF. You're an inhuman. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at this point, she's been a member of the FF for more than a year. Yeah. And she has not only been fighting with the team, she has become an integral member of their social circle as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really strange for him to say you're not a regular member of the FF. Mm-hmm. Even stranger is in the Avengers issue, which follows this. Mm-hmm. You have Steve Englehart say the same thing. Mm-hmm. It is underscored that Medusa is not really a member of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And so at this point, 149, a full 10 issues before it actually happens, Medusa is already being written out of the book. Yeah, exactly. Well, and she's more or less... Uh... Well, I don't want to say she's more or less treated that way because, frankly, in the Machismo storyline, we once again, Medusa is the person who figures the way out of the trap and figures out the ultimate solution. I mean, again, it's it's one of those weird, like, her role is really underwritten and yet very consistently painted as, as cool-headed, smart, rational, not swayed by emotion, but not some sort of icy, frigid, you know, uh, woman that, that, you know, tends to get characterized in Marvel comics. She's, she's really characterized. Well, she's an, she's a genuinely admirable character. She ends up being the most consistently likable character in the run. But I do think that there was an idea. It does point to this idea that, they are trying to build the groundwork for, like you said, for writing her off the book. I honestly think that that was supposed to happen much sooner 
like uh, from reading the letters pages, the whole um, three part Silver Surfer thing that you said was hacked out, that was supposed to be a giant size FF issue that they ended up jamming into the the actual regular title for whatever reason and blowing out, which is another reason why it feels sort of ridiculously bloated. But I, I wonder if they had set the book up to have that, that Thomas was supposed to pop And, and that actually makes a lot of sense. The uh, Giant Eyes books are finished by the time those issues come out. Mm-hmm. Like Giant Eyes FF is done as a series. Mm-hmm. So it's possible they had, they had created it as like issue seven and then issue seven just didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's that or alternately, because I think they actually Thomas or someone says that they put in a reprint in its place in the giant size. So I kind of wonder if the whole idea was that Thomas was supposed to jump in as the new scripter. And instead he was like, it's not going to happen for three months. Let's move these things around. I think. Who knows? I mean, you know, it's there's a lot of sec- it's interesting how the days in which you know, I spent copious amounts of time speculating what was going on between Stan and Jack is now literally trying to figure out what kind of scheduling nightmares were happening behind the scenes with the Marvel bullpen, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. um, But yeah, I, so I do think you're right. I think, I think the idea was that Medusa was supposed to leave much sooner and those were those were the clues, and like you said, it then it ends up being close to a year before it really comes to pass. So, so so let's let's dive on mm-hmm. um, Avengers one two twenty seven. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it's an Avengers comic, right? But it's part one of a two parter that uh, FF one fifty concludes. FF one fifty yes. is called Ultron Seven. He'll rule the world, which is an astonishingly lazy title. Yes. I mean, really breathtakingly lazy until you get to 155 through 157, which is, I laughed out loud. Anyway, um, reading Avengers 127 and then FF 150, it struck me how tired FF seemed in comparison to what Englehart was doing in Avengers. Oh, yeah. I mean, you feel like products of different times. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I think that that Conway, I I I like some stuff that Conway's done, and uh, am willing to stick up to, for him in in certain ways, in some ways. But you know, perhaps this is unsurprising for people who listen to you know the Wait What podcast regularly. I'm like, he does not seem to hold a candle to fucking Inglehart, whose issue is demonstrably better i mean in terms of everything like Englehart, literally all he has to do i mean all, all is he he has to bring all the characters together he has to set up all their conflicts he has to introduce the mystery and build the tension to the big you know finale final page of omega turning out to be ultron admittedly there's a certain degree of it's paced in such a way that it doesn't, you're not sure if it makes sense, but you know, but God damn it. If he doesn't have a scene where he's got a, a sequence in Avengers 127, where it's literally three different sets of lovers spying on one another 
that I think is only broken by like Omega grabbing someone and, and carrying them off, right? But isn't it like yeah, uh, Omega grabs Crystal? Mm-hmm. Right, At, but like who's being spied on by Swordsman and Mantis who are bickering, and this comes right after. I can't remember who else it is, but I mean, you know, that's that's incredibly concise. Anyway, it was. Um... Crystal had just left a confrontation between uh, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. There you to go. To give some some background, the reason all these characters are together are Quicksilver and Crystal are finally getting married. That's right. This is a culmination of a plot both in FF, uh, but also in Avengers, mm-hmm. uh, which is why it is a crossover between the two books. The Avengers issue reintroduces Omega, who everyone may remember, is the personification of the guilt of the Inhumans over the, their treatment of the Alpha Primitives, sets up that the Alpha Primitives are understandably bitter, I think it's fair to say, uh, and out for revenge, and have... I'm not quite sure what the mechanics were about where Maximus really came into this. Yes, Is Maximus manipulating the Alpha Primitives? Are they working with Maximus? It's unclear, because Maximus has taken out the story really early, because Maximus has been trying to team with Ultron in order to create chaos for his own ends, only for Ultron to zap him, being Ultron. Ultron is placed in the body of Omega, and the cliffhanger at the end of the Avengers issue is Omega stands revealed as Ultron. It's basically like, ha ha you guys! Sucks to be you. I've got an indestructible robot head and a big giant superhuman body. Right. In a way that Never really be. makes no sense, but eh, Omega makes no sense anyway. What are you going to do? And so to me, I'm like, Englehart is really, really working. And and again, how do I put it? I also wonder the extent to which, again, as much as I'm willing to stick up for Buckler uh, in other places... I wondered the extent to which he just doesn't give a shit about any of this because, I mean, I know that the scene ends and they they have uh, you know on page sixteen or you know eight or whatever it ends up being without the ads, and then it goes into this whole wedding of of Crystal and Quicksilver that's supposed to be this big mega moving event that that I have to say for me was like a real crazy wet fart. Like, just not oh, interesting. It's, it's, it's amazing. The, the splash of 150 says possibly the greatest 150th anniversary issue ever. That's a lie. It because is. Because yeah. on almost every level, this is a damp squib of a comic. Yes. Um, the confrontation with Ultron not only is impressively short, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't line up with the cliffhanger of Avengers mm-hmm. because the cliffhanger in Avengers actually ends up with the Avengers and FF being mind-controlled by Ultron, yeah. being unable to move or control themselves, uh, which is not uh, followed up on here. Aside from, Ultron says that himself in the first, in the second page. Mm-hmm. He says, the Fantastic Four, the Cursed Avengers, and the so-called humans, completely in my control. And then Conry goes on to show that they're not. Yeah. And yeah. there's no explanation. Like, none of the characters say, we're not in your control, they just have autonomy. Well, actually, though... yeah, sorry, he, it, no, Ultron no. does, in one panel, he literally says, you're frozen to, into a mobility, you know, by my computerized will, and then at the end, he says, I want... That's true, 
For the moment, your buddies are your own again. He does yes, say that. Yes, exactly. Which is jammed in and makes no sense because I think, honestly, either Buckler didn't get the memo or who knows. I, I think they were just like, well, there's nowhere to go from here but this. But there's a certain degree exactly. of... Ultron's won. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Ultron does win until he, he, like, gives himself the chance. And even then, he's like, oh, let me explain all this other stuff. And to be fair, it does seem like he would win if it wasn't for the point where conveniently his like destructive psionic waves wake up Franklin who just blasts him into bejesus, you know? Which... Yeah, so, so this is, you know, thing number, what, 17 of the disappointment of this issue. The, the end of this story mm-hmm. is that Franklin, who has been comatose for, at this point, what, 10 issues? Mm-hmm. If not, if not more, um, but nonetheless was brought to the great refuge for the wedding. Yeah, because what do you do with your catatonic son? Mm-hmm. You take him to a wedding, obviously. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he he is awoken by Ultron's psionic waves and unleashes cosmic power. Too much power, too much to be controlled, according to Ultron. <laughs> Then collapses. Quite what happened? Like what actually happened there? Doesn't matter because Franklin is then fine. Mm-hmm. Not only fine, he doesn't have his superpowers anymore. Yeah. Because the story really should have been called Deus Ex Machina. Oh, times three. You know, like it. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's an astounding, and it really does take three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, ten. Yeah, there's t- ten pages to mm-hmm. to finish that story. Yeah, which is really impressive because Englehart set up. You know, Englehart spent twice that amount of time setting the story up, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, the end is just uh, just crazily hacked out, really gracelessly and shamefully, uh, shamelessly, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, just. It's it's a terrible, terrible, terrible ending. It it reads like Conway didn't actually agree to cross over. <laughs> I was then like, oh shit! The the, the last part of the story, the, the like you're saying, the wedding part is so dull, mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, devoid of of any emotion, which is really frustrating because one of the things we both liked about Conway's earlier run or earlier part of the run is that his stories were dull but his emotional through line was really good mm-hmm. and then you get to like these issues and these issues that's gone yes. this seems like a man who's going through the motions yes yeah and what's weird is he's going through the emotion the motions going through the emotions he's going through the motions of the end of the Omega storyline, in a way, like the the whole sequence, uh, apart from all the stuff that doesn't really seem to hit, you know, the closest that does, I think, sort of, for me, was kind of Thor and Iron Man being like, oh, shit, love's for other people, but not for us, which was kind of a nice moment, not an FF moment, but the little sequence with Johnny and Medusa where he's like, oh, I'm okay again, except I'm not okay, but I'm okay, but I'll learn to love again, or will I, is pretty much exactly what he has jammed into the end of the Omega storyline where he's like, oh, Crystal, I'm so over you, I'm going out with Dory Evans tomorrow, you know, kind of deal, it's... 
that's the closest you get to anything. It what even more amazing again is, and perhaps this is whether it's in the plot that Conway put together, or it's in the um, the way that Buckler took the plot and was like, eh, it's not really what I want to draw, you know, is is that you've got a storyline about two people getting married. Literally, the issue after a married couple has reconciled and is on the brink of divorce, you know? And so I would think there would, if nothing else, there's kind of an... Reed and Sue literally get three panels in this whole wedding of Crystal and Quicksilver. Like, the the couple that has come the closest... The, the only other couples that is actually genuinely married in the fucking issue who've just about had their entire life destroyed and or one of them may or may not have slept with a guy with an anvil head and pointy ears, you know... Rather than them saying like bittersweet stuff about marriage or love or reconciliation, uh, Reed Richards says something like, "You know the cliche, say it for, uh, say it with flowers." And Sue's like, "Reed Richards, I think I love you." You know, and it's like, ah, it's bad. It's like this weird missing of the boat. Like if you were watching this unfold in like a a movie or a TV show or something. It the the fact that the subtext has been scooped out with a melon baller is exactly that point that makes you think that something is horribly wrong here. You know, like honestly, if we were to find out, like some dick was like, oh, you know, I know how to reboot the Marvel universe and has all of the FF and the Avengers and the Inhumans all wake up from a trance, and it's been like. 15 years where Ultron has been running the entire planet after taking over everyone as, as Ultron seven slash alpha. And they were just all in their little delusionary world, thinking that they were having lives instead of sitting there immobilized while little Ultron bots, like, you know, feed little droppers of food down their throats so they don't starve or whatever. Like it's, that, it would be the Matrix. It would be. It would be. You're right, Graham. Oh, my God. Yes. Coming soon to Marvel Comics. Civil Matrix. Civil Matrix 2. Uh, I, I, it's, 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 we, it misses, it's, I got to say, this issue, I didn't like it as a kid, and I liked it even less as an adult. It just was. It, it is, it is not a good comic. Yeah. It, and, and it is really suffers even worse by falling off of what actually is a good Engelhart Avengers issue. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily my favorite Engelhart issue in the run. No, for, no, you know. but it's a good issue. Oh, it's a good issue. Again, it's a good comic. Engelhart in his very broad, you're not going to be mistaking it for Ingmar Bergman anytime soon kind of way, is still hitting the emotional beats and putting characters not just in their paces, but advancing them. And so do, do you think that this is issue 150 among all the other things that I, I suggest might be the fault of it? Do you think it's just the fact that the Fantastic Four have slipped and fallen down their nostalgia hole at this point? I really don't know because 147 through 149 are heavily nostalgic comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only that you your villains are 
the Submariner and the Frightful Four, but that you spend so much time retelling Submariner's first appearance. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are quite clearly Conway or Buckler or both are getting their jollies by being like, do you remember that comic? It's great. Mm -hmm. Um, But 50 doesn't feel that nostalgic to me. Because if it's nostalgic, it's nostalgic for what? A storyline that happened a year ago? That that's that seemed really strange to me. Um, but by the time you get to like 151 and 152, which are Conway's final issues in the series, mm-hmm. they don't seem heavily nostalgic. They're definitely looking to the past. The start of 151 is an old school start that we haven't seen in a long time. But... But they don't seem especially nostalgic. But at the same time, you do have the the clear attempt to try and get back to the core FF as fans know them. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's nostalgia as much as trying to reassure the fans who've been around. I don't know. It just I I am unsure how to answer that, Jeff. See, I I feel that there's a level to which the F, FF one fifty is like a reconfigured uh, FF Annual 2. Like, you know, you've got a bunch of superheroes together for a wedding. There's a villain with mental waves, you know, and you have a big sequence. It's it's not nearly the same crazy chaotic thing that, that Lee and Kirby whipped up, which, God, I still love. But... You know, but there is this idea of like, oh, here's all these superheroes. And it's very, you know, it's got that 70s twist. They're spending a lot more time indulging in the soap opera of it. Um, And it's not as deep as it should be or it feels, but there's a lot. It's hard to believe those last three pages are going to have any impact, you know, unless you're the sort of person who's like, I remember what it was like when I saw all those superheroes in the room when Reed and Sue got married, you know, but maybe not, maybe not. I just, it, to me, it just seemed like there's a line in the Avengers issue Mm -hmm. that I think speaks to what they're going for more than a uh, FF annual two, which is Engelhart describes the, combination of the Inhumans the Fantastic Four and the Avengers as the greatest assembly of heroes since the Avengers Defenders War. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's Englehart being hilarious though. You no, know? no, sure. But I think it also speaks to the you know, you bring everyone together and that's an event mm-hmm. mentality getting yeah, started. Exactly. You know? And so I, I think I think it's as much that as specific nostalgia for annual two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could, could be wrong. Ooh, yeah, no. yeah, no, no, no. So you want to move on to one fifty one through one fifty three? Sure. One fifty one is called Thundra and Lightning Part One. One fifty two is called Thundra and Lightning Part Two: A World of Madness Made. One fifty three you'd think would be called Thunder and Lightning Part Three. It's not. It's called Worlds in Collision. The reason it doesn't have uh, Thunder and Lightning Part 3 is that Jerry Conway's off the book. That's right. He becomes the third writer to vanish in the middle of a multi-part storyline in this wow. series. I'm glad you're keeping track third of Third writer who mm-hmm. disappears in the middle of a multi-part storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is also one of the reasons why I think that Conway's attention is slipping. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if Conway was just, just jump ship for DC. Mm-hmm. In the middle of this. In also part because 
we get a new villain in this three-parter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Machismo, the nuclear man. The nuclear man, Jeff? That feels like a subtitle that Jerry Conway would use a DC for a character. <laughs> don't, don't you think? <laughs> when does Firestorm appear? I'm, I'm going to look that up. Yeah, you should. I think I think I want to say it's several years apart because at least if I'm understanding what's happening behind the scenes towards the end of 157 through 159, again, Thomas is leaves as executive editor and which Stan talks about in one of the soapboxes. And what ends up happening is Marv Wolfman and Len Wein end up taking over and uh but Conway ends up coming up relatively quickly after that, I think, right? I, it's so funny. I could have sworn that it was Conway, and then uh, then it was Ween and Wolfman. Con- Conway is at DC a year after this, uh, this issue comes out. Mm-hmm. Or within a year, I should say. But, uh, uh, but so... doesn't Firestorm not come out until like 78? Fire, Firestorm... Yeah, Firestorm seventy eight. Good guess. Thank you. Thank you. Very so much. these these books are published in seventy four, and Firestorm appears in seventy eight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he definitely. Thank God he took the the nuclear man part and left the machismo part behind because. Uh, oh, so uh, let me see if. I... Yeah, give a precis of these three issues, will you? Oh, yes. Let me try. So uh, what happens is uh, there's a great little opening that's very much sort of the classic FF in a way. Uh, Johnny and Ben are trying on getting themselves new suits and fancy duds, which once they see there's problems happening at the old Baxter building, they uh, Johnny flames on and uh, is like, oh, no, we didn't have a chance to treat this suit with unstable molecules. Shit, that's $100 down the drain. And then Ben's like, "Uh, I'm going to rip up my clothes anyway, and I'm also going to complain about it, even though you just pointed out the fact that, uh, anyway, damn it. So they they end up climbing to the top of the Baxter building. Sorry, thing climbs, uh, torch flies, to find Machismo, the nuclear man, who looks a lot like a shirtless chain swaddled version of sugar tits era mel gibson you know kind of gnarly kind of trash talking kind of just seems like the kind of guy who you think is gross meanwhile interestingly enough you get medusa hanging out with thundra and thundra finally is like hey you know what let me tell you my origin story. And in a thing that I once knew because I had this issue, but then forgot and then later speculated on as if it was my own goddamn idea, it turns out that Thundra is, in fact, the Femazon from the Savage Tales black and white story uh, by Stan Lee and John Romita that gets republished in one of the origin of Marvel Comics books, probably the incredibly padded out superhero women uh, it turns out that Thundra is from that lovely little one shot that I think uh, maybe Romita and Lee were, I think, threw into Savage Tales and were hoping to build a, an actual sexy series around. Turns out Thundra is from that world, a world in which the women rule and the men drool. But on another alternate Earth called Machis. It's just the opposite, where people stand around in ridiculous clothing, uh, you know, spank women for being naughty, and just 
overall make you realize that Jerry Conway enjoyed the movie Zardoz entirely too much. You get back to the Baxter building where once again, the nuclear man is fighting the human torch and Ben Grimm and doing this incredible set of Kirby swipes um, right down to punching Ben Grimm and missing him and yet still managing to more or less win by virtue of his atomic thrashing about. Reed Richards, who's happily sort of zipping around in the city and admitting to himself that normally he would have been enraged by the fact that Sue didn't want to spend every living moment with him in the city, is now saying like, but that's okay. I'm just so happy that we're together again that I'm flying this motorcycle upside down. Sorry, the air cycle or whatever that lovely little piece of thing is that I think of as, you know, more or less what happened if a soda jet fucked a grasshopper. Uh, manages to land is, on the is roof of the Baxter jet building. Cycle? It, I don't know. I think it's called the Jet Cycle. I I don't know. I mean, it should be called something. I don't know. Maybe even it says it in the in the thing here. Where's Where's Reed Richards? He is. Yeah. I mean, he fl- he flies he flies this this levitating what is clearly supposed to be built like a hovercraft thing upside down, which shows that I know nothing about how this thing works. Or alternately. Rich Buckler doesn't care. Uh, Reed Richards breaks into the building, gets punched by Machismo, thrown out of the window, and we get to see uh, Medusa and Thundra being like, oh my god, Reed Richards is falling at us. He's going to die, even though technically he is the most pliant person possible and in theory could bounce. And in issue okay, 152... Okay, okay, Jeff, 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 Jeff. I... 152. Yes. Look at that splash page. Oh, Yes. The very, the very exciting world of um, so 152 is an amazing issue for people who don't have them in front of them. Let's just say if you ever wanted to see Rich Buckler be inked by Jim Mooney with not enough time, and then you get a couple of pages that have not been inked at all and barely penciled, check out the delights that await you in uh, Fantastic Four 152, which include Reed falling from the Baxter Building with not one, not two. But in fact, three hands. So that's kind of awesome. That's that's because people, in case you're thinking he has three arms, he doesn't. He has two arms and two legs. But thankfully, his left leg has his right hand at yeah. the end of it. Yeah, it's kind of great. I mean, it makes sense. Why not? He's he's flexible. Why couldn't he just change his foot into a hand and try and grab onto something? Anyway, Thunder Stop does. Stop making an attempt for a no prize. <laughs> Sorry, it's true. Uh, Thundra manages to break Reed's fall by more or less catching him, which Medusa thinks is pretty amazing. But I'm like, meh. And then Thundra manages to sort of rage port up into the Baxter Building where. Uh, Sugar Tits era Mel Gibson is like managed to beat Ben and Johnny Storm. Thundra manages to jump on him and in an amazing scene where the two of them literally go head to head. Literally. Rich Buckler decides to to show them as a leaping together, punching at one another, hitting face first, which is kind of great. And then... Uh, yeah. Uh, somehow, Machismo disappears... Medusa figures, you know, Thundra... Oh, I'm sorry. Thundra must have disappeared with him. That's right. They both disappear. And so Medusa has to show up, recap Thundra's origin, 
Uh, Reed has to then patronize Sue, and then they pop into Doctor Doom's time machine to move sideways through time to end up in the world of Machismo's era, which Johnny Storm somehow needs instantly knows maybe by the smell of old spice i'm not sure but he flies off to machismo's uh castle and ends up seeing something horrible which is men and women fighting and men throwing whips around it's kind of like a sexier version of planet of the apes if your version of sexiness is something that's not especially sexy machismo pops back up and not, he should be called deus ex machismo because he has a special ray that not only is he allowed to kick people's butt but he can turn on this ray and sap them of their will so it's the remarkable will sapping ray that allows him to more or less call the ff baby men recruit medusa to have some swinging sexy times with uh, and we get to the delightful like, last two-page sequence where Medusa winds him, dines him, sort of semi-seduces him. Who can tell because the man's already shirtless to begin with. Then knocks him over the head with a wine bottle, which is must be a nuclear-powered wine bottle if you think about it. Because Machismo has managed to put up with everything right up to that point. But rather than freeing the FF... Medusa seems to have betrayed them because she hops on the time machine and jumps off. And Ben, as always, overreactive and not much of a memory, says, Do you see that? She ran out on us when we needed her most. Medusa turned traitor. Um, and with that... And uh, then the, the caption says, So it would appear. <laughs> so it would appear. I mean... This is the thing. Conway's gone a certain length of time between using his his narrative captions to bring a certain understatedness to his hyper dramatic uh, storytelling. That one honestly just felt like, uh, yeah, sure. Doesn't it seem like that way? Who knows? I'm out of here late. Yes, it's all but him signing off with a Conway well, that's out. It. That's, that's, he, he's done. Yep. Yeah. yeah, he's done with the caption to so it appear. But as the man said, appearances can be deceiving. And then, actually, for how the art looks in the issue, in the story itself, there is an apology for how the art looks. Yes. Yeah, which is amazing. Uh, special note to all you sharp-eyed Marvelites, if the art looks slightly rushed this ish, it's only because there almost wasn't a 152nd issue of our fabulous foursome. Jim Mooney saved us at the last minute. Thanks, Jim. Next ish, Jim, Joe Sinnott is back when the Femzon strike. Uh, yeah, so I got to say, I don't know about you, but I read these issues the first time through on Marvel Unlimited and then read them uh, the second time through very quickly on GIT Core with the double-page spreads. The double-page spreads um, are... A lot more forgiving because everything looks smaller. But reading it on Marvel Unlimited, the art here is gnarly. It was really yeah. yeah. There, there's parts of there's parts of 152 that look terrible. Yeah. I mean, genuinely, I believe it was rushed. I I wonder if Jim Mooney did the whole like ink the whole thing in a weekend or something. Because yeah, I think so. There really are moments where you're like, oh, oh man. Yeah, I think you can see where he starts off doing all the pages, like, you know, pages one through five, and then pretty soon he's just trying to hit the faces 
you know, and then at a few points, he's just like, I got to do what I can. And it seems like he's maybe hitting a panel every other page because you are seeing stuff. It it makes the Ralph Bakshi's Fantastic Four cartoon look like fucking um, Marvel's by comparison. It is it is amazingly, amazingly rushed shit. So uh but then we get Worlds in Collision, issue 153, and things look a little bit better. It's Sinnott's back. Uh, Buckler apparently has managed to get his deadlines uh, under control. And you've got Tony Isabella, who, God bless, I I really, honestly, Tony Isabella is a guy who just rarely seemed to get his shot at Marvel. And when he did, it was kind of like, oh, here's a fill-in issue here. Here's a fill-in issue there. Here's a character that we do, don't care about. His run on the this issue of the FF is pretty game. He's got a good sense of the characters. He's got a certain degree of um uh he, you know his his hyperbole is fabulous in an understated way like he's, he at one point when the FF get thrown into an arena uh it's though their very will to fight has been sapped. They stand ready, ready to battle to save an infinity of alternate worlds. Pray for them. They may die here. Which is just like, ah, it's, it is so, I think Tony Isabella really, I mean, you have, this is the third part of a storyline where you have a villain who is named after a, a character trait, you know? I mean, it's, his name is Machismo. There's not a lot of subtlety or nuance here. And like I said, this is, this is even before you get to the ending where Guys who look suspiciously like Zardoz are making out with women who look suspiciously like the women Zardoz made out with. Uh, honestly, they don't look that much like Charlotte Rampling. But, you know, you kind of you kind of get where I'm going at here. Uh, I could tell you more about this issue, but basically it's a lot of punching and there's a lot of punching <laughs> and a lot of punching. And then every time Machismo steps in, he either has his super nuclear powers and or his will inhibiting ray that uh, finally, I think once again, Medusa is smart enough to point out to everyone they need to destroy. Uh, and then Reed's like, oh, yeah, sure. And Medusa sort of mentions, yes, because I'm an inhuman, I wasn't affected by this uh, emotion inhibiting ray, which everyone's like, oh, of course, even though really that makes no sense because they're all from other planets anyway. But uh, Thing and Thundra actually get to co-punch um, uh, Sugar Tits era Mel Gibson in the taint so that he implodes and then in a remarkable and maybe this is why Tony Isabella does not stay on the book or ever gets within spitting distance of the FF again he actually does not is not able to do Stan Lee's gifted talent for taking some sort of science that he doesn't understand and making up things that therefore make it sound understandable. In no way does that happen. What ends up happening is the world of the macho dudes and the world of the femzons merge. And then suddenly women are fighting back. But then also men and women are talking and smooching and there were two worlds with a different sex. No, 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 no. Put, yes. put it as the way it actually is put in the comic. Oh, yes. They're talking and more than talking. And more than talking. You know what I'm talking about. And more than talking about. Yeah. Uh, so the natural she, she, Medusa says, 
Reed, we're starting to fade away. The natural forces of balance are taking over. Anything that doesn't belong to this new world is being drawn back to its own world. And then later, Reed Richards, Mr. Scientist, says... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Medusa once again says the natural forces probably decided that Thundra belonged in a world where the sexes are equal by choice, not because two worlds were forced together. Yes, those natural forces making decisions like natural forces should. But at least we get to see Thundra give a big kiss to Ben Grimm on the cheek and he blushes and everyone laughs Scooby-Doo style, which I thought was kind of awesome. So there you have it, true believers. <laughs> That's Jeff's recap of issues 151 through 153. <laughs> now we know why Graham does most of the recapping and I just get to blab on and on and on about my crazy theories in between. Graham? I know. I loved everything about that. Uh, what is, I think... First of all, you've covered all the high points. Thank you. Secondly, I think it's fair to say that uh, Jerry Conway does not go out with a bang on this series. <laughs> it's true. It's really true. I mean... But, but Isabella's, Isabella's uh, conclusion is probably the best issue of these this three-parter. Oh, Because Isabella does a really nice job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Honestly... It's the voice, even though he's got slightly different touches, it sounded pretty consistent. In fact, when I was reading it on Marvel Unlimited, even though I saw that it was Isabella, I kind of forgot halfway through. I was like, Conway's doing an okay job with this before I rewound and was like, oh, right. No, he's not. Yeah, no, Isabella, again, like you said, he the best of the best of the batch, which considering he's doing the wrap up, some people might say plot wise. You know, all the pieces are in place, but honestly, I don't know. I just, it, it, it was the best of a bad lot. And believe me, you would think that when you have that sort of, oh, well, that's the best of the bad lot, but you know, we'll be moving on to some quality material from here. Oh boy. No. Do you want to talk about 154? He's back. The man in the mystery mask. Yes. Uh, 154. <laughs> I think I, I can put it this way. It's a fill-in issue, you guys. It's a reprint of a Strange Tales story uh, with a framing sequence by Len Wein and Bob Brown that does nobody involved in the issue at all any favors whatsoever. Well, actually, Graham... Uh, the I, gimmick I, of the story... Yeah. Sorry, I just want to cut in. It is... It's... It's half a fill-in issue. One of the it's things, half a fill-in. Which I think is really kind of clever because it reprints an old, what, Strange Tales story that itself is only 10 pages. They get to reprint all that and then smoosh another eight pages of new material around it so that you but have it's like... it's such a terrible new material. So the, the Strange Tales story, the, the story is the FF, who at this point is really just the thing... The Human Torch and Mr. Fantastic are attacked by the man in the mask. Johnny then flashes back to the Strange Tale story where he met the man in the mask for the first time. But get this, there's no man in the mask. It was Reed Richards being a dick. Yeah, oh, such a classic he, Stanley. Reed, Reed Richards flashback. can't be a dick right now. He's being attacked by the man in the mask. Who's the villain this time? It's Nick Fury doing the same gimmick and being a dick, you guys. <laughs> oh, that's great. Even as I was reading this issue, I was feeling insulted. Yeah, yeah. Even before I got to the end where 
literally the story goes, but this guy can't be the same gimmick as last time. Oh, but it is. It's just that it's Nick Fury this time. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. It's a terrible, 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 terrible issue that really feels like last minute filler. Yeah. Yeah, it it well, which which it literally in fact is. It's kind of interesting though. In a way, I kind of dug the design of the man in the mystery mask himself, like this all green outfit with like the question mark on his face. It's not on point with the Marvel brand. The this issue, the 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 flashback parts were written by Stanley and drawn by Dick Ayers. And even though this is back before the thing has been codified to look like the thing. And at some points looks like, um, uh, a gorilla with eczema. Um, it's, I love the look like of those flashback pages. Like some of them are kind of atmospheric in that classic way. And also I kind of love the two things that I love about it are a, that it's kind of, if you put, the thing and Johnny in a speed racer cartoon because they more or less accept an anonymous offer to come out and race cars. And then only when they get in the cars do they realize they don't know anything about the guy who uh, has put them in this weird race against one another. And then at a certain point, they're like, oh, we can't control these cars. They're controlling themselves. We're trapped and or doomed. It's it's kind of it's. It's classic Marvel, by which I mean classic, terrible Marvel, but weirdly kind of enjoyable. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I liked it. I liked it better like than my, when we came back to Schluck. Yes. It, it's, it's great. Um, it's, it really, in a strange way, illustrates how Marvel has changed. Because like you said, it's classic schlocky Marvel. The, the Strange yeah. Tales original story is... As gimmicky as a Silver Age Superman story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's wrapped around a story that is uh, I, everything that's wrong with 70s Marvel. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure wrong is the right phrase, but it definitely typifies 70s Marvel. Because you have the – there's no real story. Yeah. But there's a lot of shtick. And it's also shtick that relies on you having read other fucking comics. Mm-hmm. Because there's no real, like, oh, this is who Nick Fury is and how he knows them. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, you guys, it's Nick Fury. Caption box. Hey, you guys, it's Nick Fury. You know, Nick Fury of S.H.I.E.L.D. And then he's gone within a page. Yeah. So it, it's, it goes from the Silver Age DC setup of, like, you have 10 pages to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to basically get the gimmick over as quickly as possible, have a couple of pages of exciting action, mm-hmm. and then solve the gimmick. You're done. Yeah. And you're out. Well, I think more to the point, uh, it is precisely the handoff of the baton of Silver Age DC or Silver Age Mar- to Silver Age to 70s era Marvel. Because Silver Age DC, say what you will about it, there was the point where. As w- 
most of the DC stories that I would read would have read would have given you clues about who the man in the mystery mask was, and then you could have solved it. It would have been weirdo, fucked up, Silver Age DC clues, where it's like, because I asked for strawberry and he gave me pistachio, I realized he was colorblind, which the man in the mystery mask said, you know, the same thing when he referred to my blue shirt as orange you know, kind of deal. Whereas this one, there's no way you can figure out it's Nick Fury. There's no point. Nick Fury acts so ridiculously out of character as himself once he's exposed as himself, but also in the course of the story. I mean, looking back at it, I'm like, well, he does use a lot of guns, you know, sharpshooting things. So I guess maybe that's a clue. But the fact yeah, but you're is... you're not meant to guess. That no. You're not supposed to guess. In it's story. impossible. Because yeah. it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. The the whole point is is that it's all it is is to fill up pages and to have some distracting action. And if that literally means the man in the mystery mask is Nick Fury testing his new weapons by blowing the fucking FF out of the air over a populated area, which makes no sense whatsoever, you know, is the most sociopathic weapon testing. Well, or else is some very sly commentary on what the CIA did back in the sixties. But yeah, no, it's, it's not. It's not. No, it's just it's just crap. Uh, it's just well, crap. But, okay, but think about this for a second. This comes uh, five issues after one forty nine, mm-hmm. which has Namer invade fucking New York right. with monsters yes. in order to get Reed and Sue back together. Yes. Well, and I thought that was kind of terrible, too. That seemed also ridiculously over the top. But at least that one, and don't get me wrong, I was not crazy about that either. I know you were like, ah, I kind of like it. It's sort of, it's crazy, but it's crazy. It's goofy. But again, it's goofy Silver Age DC. Yeah. We'll see, and that's it. Mm -hmm. It totally is Superman dressing up. But the difference is, for Silver Age DC... All of the monsters would have been the Justice League in outfits. Yes, that's and absolutely true. would have had the page where they mm-hmm. all unmasked and basically said a variety of, mm-hmm. and all of the scared citizens were actors. Right. All of the scared, well, and depending on how much time they had to kill, they would have talked about how they used their superpowers to replicate the specific powers yeah, that exactly. you saw the monsters do. Yeah, completely. Completely. Yeah. No, it's, it's weird. You see. In that sense, you see the comic fans that are writing these comics. It would be wonderful if they were. Uh, it'd be great if it was like, oh, they're they're reaching into other influences, you know. But it's not like the sort of thing where later we see someone like Frank Miller like start using Will Eisner as an influence. No, it's kind of like guys who are like, oh, I'm mixing 60s Marvel with 60s DC. And what you're getting is stuff that's kind of not... It's not... I don't even really feel whether it's thematically compatible or not because it, honestly, the problem is is that it feels like they're just not paying attention to what's going on. I mean, we haven't even talked about this is this is issue 154 and Four. yeah, so we've we've read something like this is seven issues into this particular arc and I want to say that the Baxter that the um fantastic car falling out of the sky and almost crashing has happened in like what at least two of the issues, if not three of them. And if you look back on this episode and the next, 
the Fantastic Four more or less falling out of the sky, trying to do a brave, desperate maneuver to save themselves from crashing is 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 beyond a cliche, you know? So it's it's really getting into that strange era of almost, you know, OCD like recycling. It's it's we're moving from the from the cover band to kind of the realm of of from from shtick to tick, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, so which it, I mean, unless you have more to say, probably is is uh, I don't know about yeah, the best actually, way. But... No, that's that's a that is a great way to move on to uh, one fifty five through one fifty seven, which is practically a retelling of an earlier story that acknowledges the earlier story and tries to convince you that it's different without managing to actually convince you. These <laughs> issues I said had terrible titles. Here's the here's the titles one fifty five. Battle Royal, not Battle Royale. Battle Royal, one fifty six, middle game. Battle one uh, fifty seven, and now the end game cometh. <laughs> They're really middle game in particular is so impressively lazy. Agreed. It's, it's staggeringly like you can't believe that. I was going to say the editor, but at that point it's uh, Ween and Thomas, both co-writing and co-editing. Weirdly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they clearly just did not give a shit, mm-hmm. and 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 that level of care and attention to detail follows through in the writing of this three parter. Yeah. Hey, you guys, did you really hope that Doctor Doom could try and steal the power cosmic again? You might be thinking, wait, Doctor Doom's a genius. He's tried this before, and he knows that it didn't work out for him. Mm-hmm. That's okay. He's come up with the perfect foolproof solution. Why doesn't he make a clone robot and put the power cosmic in there? That'll work out fine, right? <laughs> the other thing that you should know about these three issues is that 155 and 157, either intentionally or more likely, I think, not intentionally, really, really look similar. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they both have a bald dude zapping Fantastic <laughs> Four with eye beams while the thing is about to throw a punch. Yeah, this is genuinely fantastic for an automatic pilot. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. three issues are are amazing. They, they, they are so so bad. They're yeah. just, just weirdly lazy and and disconnected from themselves mm-hmm. and going through all the motions, every single motion. So the thing will say it's clobbering time at least once an issue. Mm-hmm. Everyone will will offer exposition on what they are actually seen to be doing as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not enough for someone to use their powers; they have to have dialogue where they're like, "It's time for me to flame on," or "I have to use my magical super hair," or "Look at me stretching like an idiot." <laughs> they, they have to, they have to say that. It's it's really really. For everyone involved, everyone has made better comics than this. Oh yeah, absolutely. Every single person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buckler is is you know, bless him. He's he's trying to channel Kirby, but he's trying to channel Kirby in a way that 
he's no longer trying to channel the spirit of Kirby. And in fact, his page layouts in these three issues in particular mm-hmm. are really mundane compared with Kirby and also really mundane with compared with what he was doing earlier in the series. Yes. Um, but he is definitely l- like looking at fucking issues of Kirby's Fantastic Four while drawing. Yes. Yeah. No, you get to that. You definitely get to that point where the number of swipes that that Buckler has been doing from Kirby, he's been has been um, picking up issue by issue by issue. And at this point, it's it's reached an almost claustrophobic level. You once again get this amazing sequence where Ben Grimm takes a piece of metal and twists it up into a pretzel and drops it and walks off, you know, to impress other bad guys, which is such a classic thing that Kirby did. But Kirby always managed, again, to at least have a reason that made sense, you know, at least by Kirby reasons. It's just blind imitation here. The thing that I find fascinating is for someone like me, for whom the FF uh, literally find their vision when Joe Sinnott, you know, quote unquote, comes back to the book around issue, what, 41, 42? 40. Yeah, but specifically by the time you get to like 48. Exactly. To such a point where that is the ideal, that's the the iconic Fantastic Four. Yeah, it's the iconic Fantastic Four. And in a way, Silver Surfer is the herald of that iconic Fantastic Four. And so you've got Senate inking Buckler, who's trying to do Kirby swipes, and Senate drawing the Silver Surfer. And the Silver Surfer looks wrong he looks so wrong in so it's, much it's of this really really strange isn't it he looks very much like a uh, Bashama character but also far too muscular yeah exactly he somehow misses neither neither um neither basuma nor kirby made the silver surfer as muscular he looks he looks like an oaf on a big white board in a lot of these uh, panels, and it's really odd. There's also an amazing shot of Galactus that looks terrible in this first Oh, what, in, in the uh, double-page spread in, in 155 where Silver Surfer's talking about uh, trying to escape Earth again? Yes. And you see, like, the headshot, and it looks like no Galactus that has ever appeared in comics before. It's great. It really is so bad. It is. It is the worst. Oh, but then, uh, so I don't know, Graham. Do you want to try and recap the whole thing, and then I can cackle uh, about parts okay, of it? Okay, so, or... let's, so let's recap this super quickly. the The plot of this basically is that um, Silver Surfer tried to escape Earth again, knowing yes. that he couldn't, only to fall to Earth in a Queen's Balkan Township, where he discovers that Shalabal, his uh, beloved from Zenla, is there as the gracious Queen. She sadly does not remember him, and why should she? She has no memory of being Shalabal, but she does know that she is betrothed to Doctor Doom. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the Silver is such a such a, a, an oaf in this storyline that in order to win the love of the woman who looks like his ex-girlfriend, but claims she is not, he will nonetheless work for Doctor Doom and try and defeat the Fantastic Four. Yes. Just think about that for a second. Yeah. It makes 
no sense. At no point does Silver Surfer even think, maybe she just really looks like Shalabal. He's like, no, it has to be her. And I have to prove that I love her. Therefore, I will work with a guy I know is evil yeah. to defeat my friends in battle. Yeah. Yeah. When Doom stopped laughing, he swore to release Shalabal from her vows, return her memory, and return her to me if I would slay the Fantastic Four. Part of the reason why some of this makes no sense is it's it's grotesquely misogynistic. Like, it is such a having an... I mean, admittedly, Shalabal is... Maybe this is completely in keeping with the way that Shalabal has... has uh, acted in Stan Lee's Silver Surfer stories, a.k.a. as nothing but a pure plot device. But the degree to which this is a weirdo plot device, I mean, she... I, I, but also, she is, she is not a character in the story. No. Like, she is... She, is, she could literally be... It's, what's the Kelly Sue DeConnick joke? That if you can replace your character with a light stand, then it's not a real character? Yes. Yeah. Because completely. she could be. Yeah. She, she could be, be the Silver Surfer's object. favorite light stand. She is utterly 100% an inanimate object. But that's okay, because uh, men can still fight over her. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is. And, and so Brody. because of this, because of this, the Silver Surfer and Doctor Doom team up however reluctantly and defeat the Fantastic Four, leading to a return to the Fantastic Four chained up uh, in the presence of Doctor Doom that we saw in the Darkoth issues, mm -hmm. which were just a year ago or so by the time this came out. I mean, this is really repeating itself yes. very, very, very quickly. Yes. Um, it turns out Doctor Doom being Doctor Doom has a plan B, and that plan B is that he will steal the power cosmic from the Silver Surfer and store it in his special robot, which he calls the Doomsman. The Doomsman is... Uh, I, I, we are long past people trying to come up with interesting character designs in this series. The Doomsman is essentially a generic yellow robot, but he has Kirby Crackle. But That's... to be fair, that is pretty much what Kirby was designing by the time he left the book as well. So... That's actually, that's that's very true. Yeah. Nonetheless, I I would like Rich Buckler to be working harder. Guess what, people? He's not. The Fantastic Four escape because, of course, they do. It's the Fantastic Four. They are confronted by the Doomsman, who actually wonderfully comes in and introduces himself to the team for the first time by saying, "I am the new improved Doomsman." <laughs> I, I love that. He was like, you never met me before, but trust me, I wasn't this good. Now I'm much better. I because also love I, the... And the new proof one. I love the fact that, uh, unfortunately, it's such a shame that the that issue 156 is called Middle Game, and yet issue 157 has a chapter called Zugzwang with, like, an exclamation point, which is hilarious zog swang English point with an asterisk and the caption for that is look it up <laughs> uh, even right up is like what never mind zog swang you guys zog swang i was for like pe for people who have had look it up like me and me situation where the obligation to make a move in one's turn is a serious often decisive disadvantage Yes. If you look it up on Google, as I did, the 
wonderful uh, use there they give you is black is in Zug's mind. I don't even know what that sentence means. <laughs> Zogswag again is a situation in which the obligation to make a move in one's turn is a serious, often decisive disadvantage. Black is in Zogswag, I guess it's a chess reference. It is, yes, as they all were, as they all were, yeah. But I mean, I, I'm going to guess, guess that I, that I, that I know probably don't. So yeah, let's just say Zogswag, true believers. It was kind of awesome. Uh, so, yeah, you get the Doomsmen fighting the Silver Surfer, fighting the Fantastic Four, um, and there is this, uh, gosh, how can I say it? There, I'm trying to think even what happens to Doctor Doom. Like, like by that point, Roy Thomas doesn't care because he's in such a hurry to get to his amazing shock ending that he, he oh, which about is about the issue sounds, before. Like, it's actually shocking. Yeah, it is shocking. kind of shocking. It's genuinely shocking because what the fuck? Yeah, completely. It's shocking in the same way that imagine the end of this issue, listeners, was cutting from the Fantastic Four confronting Doctor Doom to Agent Dale Cooper in a motel room drinking a cup of coffee and saying, Zugswang, Diane, <laughs> make notes to look up Zugswang. Next, I'm going to Latveria. That's how shocking it is. As in, <laughs> what? Yeah. Anyway, we're not there yet. Uh, the Fantastic Four are helped in their fight with uh, the Zoomsman, who I now once called Zuxwang. Um You should. Yeah. The uh, Silver Surfer has been told by uh, fake Shalabal that her name is actually Helena. And she's from Latveria. And she's not his ex-girlfriend. Uh, and he's like, well, what the fuck? Now I'm I'm a little bit embarrassed. What if I team up with you guys and as an apology for beating you up and trapping you? And um, what if I team up with you now and we can fight Zogzawang? Yeah. And then we can confront Doctor Doom together. But but as we're about to defeat Doctor Doom, uh, Helena will come in and say, you guys, you can't fight. Uh, look at all the look at the it's, oh, you're yeah. beauty. I forgot you're what a pulled out of the ass by, oh. by by lovely artwork. And look how old this castle is. You you would destroy the castle. That that would be bad. And the Fantastic Four say, Ooh, that's a good point, right? We should just go. You did the lovely castle you've got here, Doctor Doom. Shame if something were to happen to it. And Doctor Doom goes, Oh fuck, sure, leave, whatever. Blah. That might seem like a stunning anticlimax, and you'd be right. Wait, but it's followed by. Before we get there, I need to okay. cut you. I need to cut you off, Graham, because one to heighten the tension of this incredible twist ending that we've been talking about, but haven't revealed yet. That still is still coming. I should point out that not only is that a weird anticlimactic uh, finale to their big fight, it's also heavily ripped off from an earlier issue of the Fantastic Four. The whole sequence, uh, isn't it under Lee and Kirby, where, you know... It's, 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 it's the last Lee Kirby, do, uh, Dr. Doom story. That's right. Right. Where, yeah, where, where the, he brings Crystal and Sue in for dinner. That's right. And uh, he, he gets rid of his own henchman, because yeah. his own henchman was, was going to destroy art. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you yeah. you actually see the Sarah. So you get this weird that I think Thomas is Ween Thomas or Wamus. I don't know. No, at, uh, this, at this point, it's just Thomas. Oh, it is this, just Thomas. This, this is just Thomas. That's right. I sorry. I thought they plotted it out together, but yeah, it's just Thomas. Uh, Thomas seems to think is going to work as an actual. I don't know. It lacks conviction, but then little do we know because the page itself is in which this denouement happens is strangely flame licked uh, with the panel borders being something almost like an, an infernal almost flame. Demonic. Wouldn't <laughs> you think cuts to fucking Mephisto. Yes. Who is like, Oh, funny story. You guys, that is Shalabal because yeah. I thought it'd be really funny. If I put Shalabal on Earth, gave her amnesia so she thinks she's Helena, the slave girl, then Silver Surfer will think she's Shalabal. Then we'll find out that she's actually Helena, but she's actually Hel- she's actually Shalabal after all. Oh, I'm the funniest demon. The end. <laughs> oh my God, Graham. It, it almost breaks one's brain, and yet somehow it really doesn't. I mean, it has the... It's so great. The bit where his, his minor demon says, that slip where she spoke the Silver Surfer's real name, and Mephisto goes, merely by way of tantalizing my nemesis, of dangling the truth before him like a piece of bait, only to withdraw it, and thus increase his agony. So glide on, Norinrad, with even more pain in your all-too-human heart than you had before, and with no hope of sorrow's end. Yeah. I think yeah. that's how Rod Thomas plotted. <laughs> I think he talked to him like that. <laughs> he probably you know did. Think? Yeah, yeah. I I gotta tell you. Like I... he, he, he called Len Wein and be like, Len, I, I, I've been thinking about this issue. And what if this was my t- way of tantalizing my nemesis, of dangling the truth before him like a piece of bait only to withdraw it and thus increase his agony? <laughs> so glide on, Len Wein. And I will have the script to you on Monday. <laughs> Yeah, I um, it's 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 uh, <laughs> it's terrible. It's a terrible <laughs> it twist. Is. Yeah, it's the it's what. Well, here's the thing: if you had been reading uh, Silver Surfer, chances are it's a great twist mm-hmm. because Mephisto and Silver Surfer were enemies in that series. Yes, and Silver Surfer was constantly battling Mephisto, who wanted to just corrupt his soul. Right, right. So on the like larger Marvel continuity element of it, sure, great twist. Points to you, Roy Thomas. As a twist for the Fantastic Four series, where Mephisto has never appeared before. Yeah. Well, but I think it, also, even more to the point, I mean, it's it's a horrible twist for the Fantastic Four, but also for the Silver Surfer, it, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it makes, it makes sense. I don't. I ha, I only read a few issues of the Basima Lee Silver Surfer stuff. I found it really horribly overwrought as a kid when I tried to return to it as an adult, and I kept telling myself I was going to make my way through it. I probably will someday. God help me. But the the idea is, as you point, as you mentioned, just in your description, Mephisto is into explicitly torturing the Silver Surfer. There's nothing explicit here. Like the Silver Surfer flies off and is trying to get back to 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 Zenla because Shalabal he thinks is really there, 
Mephisto knows that Charlotte Ball is, in fact, dangling right under the Silver Surfer's nose, but he doesn't know it. You know, there's no real oomph there other than the idea that Mephisto is like, oh, ha, 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 I've made the Silver Surfer's whole point of existence more or less... um, useless, which frankly, to me, only works if it's Roy Thomas's form of meta-commentary on the fucking Silver Surfer at that point. But I, I think that, but it doesn't, it just doesn't have any zugzwang to it, you know? It just doesn't, there's no real point to, to, there's no, there's no real explicit torture there. The torture is of this weird level of insider jokiness like yeah Mephisto a, is it, an inside it, it joke is, with that he's sharing with us slash his demons yeah know? and it and it really reduces Mephisto mm-hmm. you know Mephisto all of a sudden is like ha 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 and then he ordered a sandwich on white bread I gave him rye <laughs> totally exactly Mephisto is every jerk that you've ever feared had spat in your food but didn't tell you like this is the level of his revenge, and it's 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 goofy. It doesn't really work unless you're you know unless you're a Mephisto, and it also just feels these three issues really are once again we are right in the verge of Venture Brothersville because they are so ridiculous in and of themselves. Like well, it's especially the final line of this issue is the greatest. The final line of this issue is, and there is laughter in hell for about the space of half an hour. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I love how badly he so blows precise. that. Oh my god, that is just such a fuck up of a. I, like, I know, I I could even guess, like, I think, I swear to god, I'm re- I know that story that Roy Thomas is trying to, 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 to lift from. Like, I want to say it's a Harlan Ellison line or something, but the whole like for the space of about half an hour, it just seems you're right. It's so dumb that and the amazing page in 155, the look on Doom's face where he he his as he triumphantly announces that Shala Ball is now the wife of Dr. Doom and he's essentially cuckolded the Silver Surfer is amazing. That shit is amazing. That is straight up like the monarch couldn't have monarched it any better than how Doctor Doom is monarching it in that page. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Really. Oh. So yeah, Graham, I gotta tell you, I can't I a part of me is like I feel like we're once again in order to hit it on time, we're going to have to recap one fifty eight and one fifty nine in the space of about ten minutes which I have to tell you, I'm more or less okay with. So... Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's roughly as much time as they deserve. Yeah, uh, for sure. The best thing, and I shit you not, uh, about these two issues is the title of 158, which is Invasion from the Fifth, counted Fifth Dimension. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's really genuinely the best thing about these two issues. However, 159 is called Havoc in the Hidden Land. Mm-hmm. Jeff, did you read the Avengers uh, 127? Yes. Is it called Havoc Did... in the Hidden Land? No, but the cover says that. The cover line is Havoc in the Hidden Land. That is too fucking funny. That is... No. So, 
159 is actually named after a tagline on the cover of Avengers 127. The Hidden Lands in both issues is the same, namely the Great Refuge. This is another Inhumans uh, storyline. It is fast on the heels of the other one. It is also the the last uh, Medusa storyline. She she leaves. Yes. At the the end of this two parter, Um, there are there's some really weirdly interesting shit in one fifty eight. Johnny. Johnny's complete lack of love life uh, on the third, uh, third and fourth pages are, are is interesting to me. Sue saying that she wants to be a private detective. Yes, on page four. Oh my amazing. god! Isn't that astonishing? Actually, isn't that classic case? She. This is once again in. Wait, maybe is it page four? What I remember is is it's once again it's not even her saying it. Isn't it Reed saying like I know you've toyed with yes, becoming yes, yeah. It's like yeah. Reed saying, I, I, I know you've told it's never, it's never brought back either. Like, it, it never happens. Thank God. I mean, it is the classic. I would love it. I would love Sue to be a private detective. Oh, no. No, no, no. no it's, it's I, oh, I, well, I mean, maybe if she was an entirely different character, I suppose. But there was just something ridiculous about that. I don't know why. There's just nothing... It, at no, we are a hundred and fifty some odd issues into the Fantastic Four. Sue has never even said the word mystery. You know what I mean? Like it's completely. Like, oh sure, it's out of nowhere, but it's not a bad idea. Really? Like I, I would love it. I genuinely would. Uh, but then I'm also the person who thought that the Mark Wade Shield issue, where she's a spy, is kind of great. Well, there you go. There you go. I, for me, I'm sort of, I don't know. I just, I, 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 I am just at a loss. To me, I'm kind of like, it's the ultimate, the fact that Sue doesn't even have to say anything. And I, I, I've got to say, the whole thing, I normally, despite how much I loved Medusa in her understated, undeveloped, but as I mentioned before, completely consistent way, I hate to say it, but I'm kind of I'm so glad that she leaves the book because I don't trust Roy Thomas with her character. I really don't. It's it's true. We both loved her when Jerry Conway was writing her, and even in the the Len Wein issues. Yes, uh, she she's not really she doesn't really do much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know then when Thomas has because Thomas co writes one fifty six solo writes one fifty seven and then writes one fifty eight and one fifty nine solo as well mm-hmm. and Medusa comes off as barely there really yeah yeah completely utterly utterly in the background has nothing to say little more to do and uh, you know it it's just. I don't know. I, you know, she has like maybe two panels where she points out that Pietro might be manipulating everyone, which is something that no one else has considered. And in theory, that's the closest we get to sort of classic Medusa. But somehow it doesn't even seem right at that point. I don't know. It's just weird. I'm so glad that it's gone. And and also, I think maybe I'm wrong. Is this issue also supposed to have been some sort of giant-sized issue or something? Because the last page of issue 158, where where it's like the FF hop in their little jet and blast off, 
and it's like we're going for broke vroom and that is like panel seven very tiny and right below it it's like the rage of battle like just jammed into like the world's smallest next issue blurb box what is going on with this book by but, this but, point but to be fair it might be having to squash things in because just four pages earlier you do have a full page reveal of the thunderhorn oh did you laugh at the thunderhorn too because that cracked me up <laughs> this is the thunderhorn it really is. Uh, how, how, how do we actually explain the story of this? Um, the Great Refuge has been invaded by God. What's his name? Zemu. Zemu from the yeah, fifth Zemu dimension. The Mer- yeah. Zemu the Mer- the because for some reason I have a lisp. Zemu the Merciless, um, who has the Thunderhorn, which I feel is the only way we should be saying it. It should be the Thunderhorn. Uh, Yes, as someone melodramatic application, I admit, yet one quite in keeping with the way of your world, which Zimu has long observed from afar. He's actually brought back. He's he's returned from Strange Tales 103, apparently. Uh, And then says, also, the more recent Human Torch issue 3. Was there a Human Torch reprint series? Yes, there was. I actually had a couple of issues of it. Yeah. Um, But the Thunderhorn turns everyone into Black Bolt. Is, yes. is the gimmick. Yeah. If you speak into it, it turns anything you say into a destructive force. Yeah. And then it, he basically is like, so what happens if Black Bolt uses it? Which, on the one hand, that's a good question. On the other hand, wouldn't Black Bolt's power just destroy the Thunderhorn? Right. You would think. You would think. Right? right? Yeah. No, it's true. But that does matter because he's there to, to, uh, to cause trouble. He actually sends uh, Quicksilver back to the New York to get Medusa, which is the, the gimmick of the issue that, that Quicksilver is trying to get Medusa. Yeah. Uh, and Medusa, a wonderful 1970s garb, which really looks more like 1969 garb, but, you know, it's comics. They're always at least five years behind. Yeah. Um, sure. And she's like, okay, I'll go back to Great Refuge then. I guess that's what I'm doing. Uh, and that leads into uh, 159 Havoc. In the Hidden Land. I'm just going to say everything as Zemu now. <laughs> well, see, the great uh, thing is, to uh, me, Graham, your earlier Zemu sounded awesomely like the Cowardly Lion from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> that sounded a little bit more like Ted Knight from the Super Friends narration. So I'm kind of envious of both of them, frankly. Like, once you said the Thunder. Like and then we're saying those lines. I was like, "Oh my god!" We like Patreon people. Let us know if you would be willing to. What's that? Uh, I can never do it again. Oh, which reminds me, have you seen people on Twitter say that they want a a podcast just of me doing cat talk? Yes, I did see that. I did. (laughs) Meow 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 meow. Yeah, I'll just finish the episode in cat talk. You should. Meow, 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 meow. It's clobbering, meow. Meow, meow, meow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take us through 159. Oh, uh, God. I don't know what to tell you. Basically, uh, they blast off. They go to the hidden land. They try and sneak in. Other inhumans, like, punch them, knock them out. Once again, you end up with a FF in chains, but then they're not. It turns out that uh, there's the... 
lovely blue-skinned princess and her sensible inventor father, also from the fifth dimension, who are not bad uh, people. I can't remember her name for the life of me. Uh, yeah, her name is her name is Valeria, who later becomes Reed Richards, Sue Richards' daughter. Right, like that name, yeah. not the blue, not particular character. But yeah, it's the name for, of, of their daughter later on, which is super weird. Yeah, it is very strange. Joe Sinnott really goes to town on people's faces. Honestly, the faces of the various blue-skinned invaders is Are great. great, right? Yeah, there's just so much lovely animation and design. There's like a kind of a portly guy with a beard who looks kind of like Orson Welles. There's the guy, the, you know, smart, the scientist father with the raised eyebrow who looks it just, it's all good stuff. The faces look great. Everything else is kind of just really, it's just lame. No, I, 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 I'm going to disagree with you. I think at this point, Senate and Buckler are doing a great thing. I, yes. I really like the Ben Grimm by this point. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I but you're, but you're right. The, the, the denizens of the fifth dimension look particularly good in, mm-hmm. in a way that the other characters in this issue don't. Mm-hmm. And it's really strange. Well, there, there is an amazing point. In fact, like things are going well. And the, then the page at which um, uh, Johnny and Valeria kiss and the human and Quicksilver is like, hey, good for you. You've stopped thinking of my wife as your girl. So awesome. But is that... is also clearly inked by John Romita Sr. Oh, that's so funny. I was trying to place it because it really does. Because it looks like John Romita Sr. from 1948. Not from current no, it's, it's it's He's clearly inking Buckler. It's clearly Romita. Uh, he inks the, those, those two pages. Let's put it this way. It clearly wasn't Senate is a point that I can definitely agree with. Yes. You. And then, yes. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, things wrap up. Uh, with, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so things wrap up because it turns out uh, in 150, the end of 158, the team blasts off the Great Refuge, but they leave Sue behind. 159 oh, right, starts with Ben being pissed off that they have done that. He's like, come on, she's a member of the team. We might need her power. And Reed is like, I'm not going to talk about it. Nope, not going to talk about it. Lo and behold, she came anyway because she's invisible. Yeah. Turns out you can do that when you're invisible. And, of course, she turns the tide. She, yes. uh, It is her intervention that saves the day. Um, and in the process, uh, proves to Reed that he's always just been a dick. <laughs> Only joking. He's going to be a dick for years to come. Ah <laughs> oh, dear, ah oh, dear. I do. Yeah, but yeah, so so they they the bad guy is vanquished. Uh, Johnny gets the girl. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, don't do we ever see Valera again? I <laughs> like don't... he gets the girl for like this, this issue, mm-hmm. and then, but he's not cut up about this at all. In fact, he's so not cut up that when. Medusa says, I'm going to stay with the Inhumans. This is my place. He celebrates by returning to his original Fantastic Four outfit. Yes. Yeah. Which, uh... Ooh, back in universe, I kind of thought, now we look more like a team again. That's all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, the hidden story is, is because Roy Thomas is already launching the Invaders and is going to be bringing back the original Human Torch, he doesn't want to create confusion between the two characters, so he gives Johnny back his blue-skinned outfit, which is the caprice giveth and the caprice taketh away, I guess. So, eh, eh, eh. I gotta say, it's amazing how underwhelming I found these two issues to be, in part because 
the character of Zimu, who once again is being pulled from these strange tale stories, which, thanks to the miracle of issue 154, we know are not that good. To see the character come <laughs> back for no reason, it really makes uh, Conway's resurrection of Gregory Gideon look like, I don't know, the fucking Empire Strikes Back uh, in context with what we get here. It is... It is these two issues seem like the very definition of weak sauce, I think, even though, as you said, Buckler and Sinnott are kind of very nicely in sync. Um, you know, Buckler seems to have hit his sort of stride and Sinnott is really doing some some terrific work, except for those last two pages he couldn't get to for whatever reason. So and, and so, of course, Buckler and Sinnott are gone by the next issue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, because is the last issue, is next issue the first Perez issue, or is it like the issue uh, after no, it's, that? No, it's, it's Bushima and Chickstone, and then ah. Bucklerts and are back maybe after that. But yeah, they're, they're, they're actually not on the next issue. Okay. But, right. uh, Perez is, is really soon. Perez is, is right around the corner. Yeah, he really um, is. But Jeff, how would, you, how would you talk about these issues as, as a whole? What's really funny is in in email uh, earlier on today, you basically made a reference to like these these were not fun issues for you. Yeah, I, um, they aren't. I mean, I think you pointed out the idea that uh, one fifty seven strong, but then one forty nine really kind of betrays it. But as you enjoyed that, enjoyed one forty nine at least sort of on its own merits. I kind of didn't like to me, these issues are the Marvel machine has broken down. Like uh, what it's not just for me, the feeling that the FF, you know, as nostalgia act has started to really lose its um, appeal per se. It's just more the idea between Marvel's relentless expansion between the fact that no matter how much you can dress, get an artist to swipe from Jack Kirby and, you know, Buckler later on in interviews would insist that he was very heavily pressured to swipe. Uh, there's just, you can't, and also running right up against the limits of Reed and Sue are about to divorce, but no, they're not because, well, let's give it to the person who is in their early 20s and has not been married, much less divorced, to try and thrash it out for you. It just seems like there are limitations. The FF have hit a period at which, and maybe Marvel Comics overall, you can see that there are people who are either have very fanish passions trying to reinvent the wheel over and over again um, to diminishing returns. And I, I uh, or you can see those people actually trying to um, put their own stamp, their own comics and their own comic creations out in the world. But uh, the flip side of that is knowing that they've also got to crank out the FF in the true, you know, FF ish style. So yeah, exactly. There, so it, it to me, it's it's actually very troubling, especially as a guy who loves Marvel comics and loves Marvel comics in the seventies, and actually had these issues very again, nineteen seventy four, nineteen seventy five. I'm eight or nine years old. I'm not a discerning reader. Some of these I remember 
really liking some of them. I remember being very like Machismo. What the fuck is up with Machismo? But overall, like looking at it now, it seems like Marvel is suffering such severe growing pains and is caught in in between the trap of trying to be original, having to create product, you know, that that the the system really just seems to be breaking down. And in, in these issues, the only way some of it makes sense is if you see if you if you see it as a a system that is just not working or is bare I should say is barely working because frankly some of these are just I mean they're not like you look at that one issue with Jim Mooney doing his best to fill in for Rich Buckler it barely looks like a professional it doesn't really look like a professional comic and frankly it barely reads like one so well I think I wouldn't go as far as say it looks unprofessional, but it doesn't look like it belongs in this series the way that the series has been stylistically. Mm-hmm. And I think the the bigger problem is the writing at this point is is yeah. the bigger problem mm-hmm. because sure the book looks uh, uninspired, shall mm-hmm. we say, but aesthetically still generally keeping in the parameters that have been set up since say the Bashema days. Which right. at this point are five years, four years ago, right? Um, but the the stories are just nose diving into navel gazing. Well, they they nose dive into navel gazing, but I also feel again there's something that's not working. Is it the fact that the writers who are writing this stuff are cranking things out for like four or five other titles? Is it because they're enslaved by their own fanishness? Or is it kind of this idea that the Marvel method, which worked really well when you have guys like Ditko and Kirby who had been telling comic stories for, you know, decades, are allowed to plot the stories. And then you get dudes like Rich Buckler, who, bless his heart, is, you know in his mid-twenties, and is also way more interested in telling something that, you know, Starenko-ish more than Kirby-ish, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I do have that thing of, like, I feel like either Conway totally missed the boat or Conway was doing the best with the hand that was dealt him. And that's what I kind of feel, is is that the Marvel machine is a machine that is kind of flying out of control and there are areas where where people aren't looking you know where there's some great stuff that is going to be coming out of 70s marvel or is already coming out of 70s marvel you know all this is happening while steve gerber's man thing is going on for example but but at the larger scale at the ff as flagship the the fact that these issues are so bad uh, and and who knows? Like, according to the letters pages, people either can't tell at all or or they can. And all we're getting is the state propaganda product. It makes me wish that I could have been, you know, that there was an online database of like, I don't know, comics buyers guide issues or whatever the fuck the fan 
papers were of the time to actually see what people <laughs> really did think of these issues, you know? Cause... What if the internet existed back then? Exactly. Exactly. You know? So I don't, I don't know, Graham. So that was it for me. It was a relatively dour experience sort of with, unless you just at a certain point, Conway's camping it up. Thomas is camping it up. It's kind of hard not to laugh at some of the stuff, some of which is intentional, like that amazing title to the, you know, you know, trouble in the fifth. And we do mean fifth dimension. Uh, and some of it is just um, it's it's it is slipping into that that kind of it's hard to take seriously because it doesn't feel like even the best you can hope for is, is that there's a degree of passion uh, that that passion is kind of about recreating something from, you know, 10 years ago or sometimes 10 or 15 issues ago. The, the, the promise of Reed and Sue, their marriage is split. What happens to a team that's a family when the family starts to fray and split? Uh, it, that promise is more or less, um, I don't know. I don't want to say betrayed, but it certainly well, is it's, not it's redeemed. Yeah, it's abandoned. So what what I find really interesting reading these is the first read through mm -hmm. was really um, I really enjoyed it. It was really easy to read through them. Oh wow! Them okay. In a way that the in a way that hasn't been for a while. It hasn't been I think since the Lee and Kirby issues. Mm. Um, and rereading them was when I was just like, oh, these are just a disaster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the first read through, I was like, these are fun. These are to like they're totally light. They're fluffy. I'm getting through them. You know, I'm enjoying these comics. Right. And it was just read, reading the back. It was just like, oh, but this, this, oh, no, and this, mm -hmm. oh, and this, oh, oh, and, oh, and this too. Yeah. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. And th it was the second read. I was like, oh, this, these are, these are disasters. Mm -hmm. Like this is a comic where, which has very much lost its way. Mm -hmm. But I can totally imagine there's a fandom at the time reading it. It's doing everything he wants it to do. Yeah. Because if you're reading for It's Clobbering Time and Flame On mm -hmm. and and the bickering between the characters, mm -hmm. all of that is mechanically served up to you on a monthly basis. Yeah. And if you're not binge reading like we are, mm -hmm. then it wouldn't be as obvious. Do you know what I mean? Like catchphrases are catchphrases because of repetition. Sure. Repetition is very different when you're reading an issue a month than when you're reading six issues right after another. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I can see that. I, I think I even agree with it. Uh, weirdly enough, I would have to say some of the issues before this and some of the issues after this are going to be ones that I would like to You'll think. Enjoy more. Yeah. That I enjoyed more. These were especially problematic because they really do seem like, there's such a conscious, either uh, either a conscious walking back of 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 goals, or there's just a certain amount of capitulation. But I do get it. I do wonder the extent for myself to which, at a certain point, like I kind of feel that Joe Sinnott is so becomes the most crucial member Arf's of book. The, yeah 
by yeah. far. And when he's on there and he's inking and you get Buckler doing some sort of Kirby-ish sort of stuff, it's it 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 is it's this it's a weirdly satisfying way. I there there is a way in which Sinnet ends up being the thing, not Lee or Kirby at a certain point, for which people have a nostalgia or an identification for the Fantastic Four. And if you hit the right sweet spot of the art and the inking, it 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 feels better than it is. It reads better than it is. It it just it seems better that it actually is, you know? It's like if you come back to it with clear eyes, once you kind of had that fill of, oh my God, the, you know, the buildings are all these sort of, you know, what I think of as Kirby style skyscrapers, they're really more like Senate style skyscrapers now, you know? It's really Senate whose faces, who are Reed and Ben and Johnny and Sue. Not, not, Kirby anymore, you know? No, it's true. The, the Senate is the visual continuity of this book and continues to be all the way up to the burn uh, yeah. era. Yeah. And... and and when Senate is there and Senate is on, mm-hmm. it feels like the FF, no matter what is happening. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. There's uh, Objectively, they're bad issues, but mm-hmm. I can't deny it. I think this is a, a more fun batch of issues than we've had for a while. Yeah, I I feel like I enjoyed the other issues more, honestly, weirdly. And like I said, there's stuff around the corner. Like, even the stuff that I remember is really kind of disliking. Well, of course, as you know, I'm like, no, Graham, you forgot about the Shaper of Worlds issues. But, you know, but I I get your point. I take your point, and I see it. (laughs) No, 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 I didn't. (laughs) No, Jeff, I did not. Graham, do you want to tell us what we should be uh, reading for next time, do you think? Yeah, I do. FF 160 through, let's see, 160 through 170? Does that seem reasonable? I think that seems pretty reasonable. Uh, let me see here. I, I feel like since we're moving into that issue of like, oh, uh, that realm of like yeah. issues. 160 through 170, because that uh, that gets us to George Perez. It gets us also to the uh, Power Man three-parter. Yes. Yeah, very excited by that. So, yeah, 170. Oh, boy, 170. And then, right, 171, which is goofy as shit. Yeah, it goes oh, on it's, for it's a 171 bit. as well? Uh, no, this, because... This I, 172, no, because 171 launches into a particular storyline that goes on for a bit. For, like, four or five issues, in fact. So, yeah, yeah. let's... 160 through 170 is a good call. And you guys, you just wait what's coming up. Because I, I, I think it might be getting fun again i don't want to say that because i feel like every time i say that you have a couple of issues that you're like oh these are fun and then it just goes horribly downhill again yeah we'll see i i seem to recall there's stuff that that i quite liked on the other hand there's also a lot of it that uh is stuff that i rem- like it all meshes together really super heavily for me so yeah you know people just let's let's all try it out and we'll find out together you know Yes, let's let's go on this crazy journey together. <laughs> this is when I tell you that uh, we are uh, available all across the internet. If you're looking for show notes for this episode and for all the other Baxter Building episodes and all the Wait What episodes, you can find them at waitwhatpodcast.com, where you'll also find written posts by Matt Terrell, by myself, and by Mr. Jeffrey Lester. You can also find us on the Tumblr, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com, 
where there are basically comic images and occasional quotes from books, um, which basically comes down to, what am I reading or thinking about? Yes. <laughs> I, I wish there was more rhyme or reason to that, but I can't lie. There's not. There's really not, you guys. Um <sighs> There is, let's see, where else are we? Oh, there we're on Twitter. Uh, at Wait What Podcast on Twitter. Jeff is on Twitter at Lazy Bastard at L A Z Y B A S T I D. I am on Twitter at Graham M at G R A E M E M. Uh, and we are a Patreon supported podcast. Backs Building in particular exists only because of the kindness of our patrons. Uh, because I mentioned the word Patreon, Jeffrey, take it away. Yes. Graham is not lying, whatnots. Uh, we owe very special thanks to all of our supporters on Patreon who uh, make this all possible, especially in particular the Baxter Building uh, only exists because you guys supported us. We also owe a huge debt uh, and uh, big thanks to the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of this podcast and... Um, special thanks go out to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for not destroying all of us into so much solar mash, but also for uh, supporting this podcast. We are very, very grateful to all of you. To be fair, it's, you know, it's still early in the month. So who, who knows? Who knows what Empress Audrey is going to do? We're recording this just before the solstice. Oh, For yeah. all we know, Empress Audrey may celebrate the solstice by raining doom down upon us all. Let's face it, 2016, I wouldn't put it past I was going to say, <laughs> something to look forward to. It might arguably be better than the 2016 we've had so far. Also, <laughs> 2016, 2016, we're far enough in, we can do the 20 date as opposed to 2000 and. All right, I'll right? take your word for it. Sure, yeah. 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 Do you sure. think people were saying 1916 back then? 1916 they were in fact that's 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 i'm almost all but certain that that's what they did yeah okay well point point made <laughs> hey jeff graham you have a catchphrase oh yes thank you so much for joining us everyone and we will see you next time in the lobby of the baxter building <laughs>